one of the most sobering statements in Scripture is, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and easy is the way that leads to destruction, and many are those who find it. But narrow is the gate, and hard is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. These are Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And through these words, Jesus challenges us to think about the path we're currently walking, to think carefully, critically about the path we're on and its destination. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide that and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But narrow is the gate, and hard is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Can I ask you this morning, which spiritual path would you say you're currently on? As we open up the scriptures this morning, we're going to see some characters that illustrate these paths and their ultimate destinations. Characters who've entered the wide gate and are walking the path that leads to destruction, and then one character who's entered the narrow gate, the hard way that leads to life. These characters help us think critically about our own lives, our own spiritual paths, and our ultimate destination. So let's turn together in our Bibles to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, we continue this morning in our year-long series in the book of Acts. We're marching onward and nearing the end. Today we read Acts chapter 24 in the Bibles we've provided on your chairs. You can find that on page 933, page 933. And if you're here today and you need a copy of the Bible, we would love to give you one in the entryway on the book, the third bookcase. From the, the door, you can find those hard cover black Bibles. Please take one, give one to a friend. Acts chapter 24, I'll read the whole chapter. Luke here is the author of the book of Acts, and he writes, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down, and some of the elders, and a spokesman, one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight... Most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. 
And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion, and he ordered that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was, a, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So the charge of this sermon is beware the path of deception and follow the path of truth. Beware the path of deception and follow the path of truth. Three people, three character profiles in this narrative, only two paths. Two characters have entered the wide gates, the easy way that leads to destruction, but there is one character who's entered the narrow gate, the hard and difficult path that leads to life. Three people, three characters, two paths. First, Tertullus and the path of deceptive speech. He's the first character that we will unpack. Second, Paul and the path of truth. And then thirdly, Felix and the path of deceptive gain. So Tertullus, the path of deceptive speech. Paul and the path of truth. And then thirdly and finally, Felix and the path of deceptive gain. We've entered the home stretch of the book of Acts. These past few final chapters detail Paul's arrest in Jerusalem, the accusations that are levied against him, the defenses and speeches that he makes, the proclamation of the gospel 
that he speaks out. And then ultimately, his appeal to Caesar and his journey to Rome, where he will proclaim the gospel in Rome, which is the trajectory that the Lord said that he would be on, and, and the Lord is fulfilling that at each step, at each turn. So these final chapters are, are very much a courtroom scene, legal proceedings, accusations, defenses, determinations, all about Paul. And through these court proceedings, different character profiles are displayed and different responses to the gospel are made. And so when we read narratives in the scripture, it's oftentimes the shifting in character that, that, that leads us to the central point of the passage. So you have three characters, and they make three speeches in this passage. And what the Lord is doing through his word is helping us see the character profiles and their responses to the truth. And they ultimately filter onto two paths, one that leads to life, the other that leads to destruction. And every narrative in the scripture is just helping us to self-reflect as well. That's what I love about reading Jesus in the Gospels. You see yourselves in the shoes of the characters oftentimes. Usually for us, it's the thick-headed dis disciples, right? As you read narratives in the Old and, New scripture, Old and New Testaments, consider the characters and the shifting and what's going on there. This is central to this passage. Different characters, different responses to the truth. Let's consider this first character, Tertullus, in the path of deceptive speech in verses 1 through 9. So we meet this man in verse 1. His name is Tertullus. After five days, Luke tells us the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, and they laid before Governor Felix their case against Paul. So Paul has been taken captive and he's been led by the Roman cavalry from Jerusalem to this coastal, Mediterranean coastal city called Caesarea, which was the seat of the Roman government there in the ancient Near East. That's where the governors were. The governor of Judea, who's currently Felix, lives in Caesarea. So fearing that Paul's going to be torn to pieces by the Jews in Jerusalem, the Roman military commander named the, the tribune, Lysias is his first name, ushers Paul by a cavalry all the way to the seat of the Roman government there, to Felix. Paul's Jewish accusers come down with a hired spokesman, and the idea here is an attorney, a lawyer, an eloquent lawyer who makes their case to Felix against Paul. Tertullus is a strategic move. He's a Gentile, and he makes the defense before Felix a Gentile. So the Jews have hired a Gentile to speak eloquently against Paul to gain favor with Governor Felix. Tertullus's character is represented the representative of all the Jewish crowd, the cohort that was collectively against Paul, the hostile group of Jews against Paul. Tertullus is their spokesman. He represents them. He operates out of utter falsehood and lies and false accusations. He's walking in deception. His speech is deceptive. The hostility of the Jews stems from their prideful desires to maintain their own man-made religious establishment. Paul's been proclaiming the gospel as a true Messiah who's come from God, the fulfillment of all the Hebrew scriptures. And he is rocking the boat as he's inviting people 
in Jerusalem and throughout the Roman world to repent and believe in this Messiah, in this Jesus. He's upsetting the Jewish religious establishment, and they're irate. It's akin to what they did to Jesus. Why did people hate Jesus? Why did the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders hate Jesus? Because he was upending and threatening their religious establishment, their man-made religious establishment. That's the source of the hostility. So they summon Tertullus, and he makes this case against Paul before Felix in verses 2 and following. He's been summoned, and he says, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. What is Tertullus doing with his introduction before Felix? This is what my mother says, Dane, you're trying to butter me up. He's using flattery to gain favor before Felix. That's what he's doing. And it's filled with fal falsehood. In fact, Governor Felix knew very little peace during his eight-year reign. Revolt after revolt, dissension after dissension occurred under his watch. He was notorious for receiving bribes. He was despised by the Jews. Yet to hear Tertullus, it seems that Felix is in the good favor of the Jews. But it's not so. So even in his introduction, Tertullus is operating out of falsehood. And it will continue as these accusations against Paul, all grounded in falsehood. Verse 5, For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So we see three charges here. He stirs up riots. He's a ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes, also known as Christians. And he's profaned the temple. He stirs up riots. Paul did not stir up a riot in Jerusalem. We saw that. He came peacefully. He was spotted. And the Jews themselves created the hostility. He didn't stir up a riot in Jerusalem. Paul was a leader among the Christians, so that part of the accusation is true. He was a leader in Christianity, a powerful proclaimer of Christ. He did not profane the temple. This is another false accusation. He was accused of bringing Gentiles in to the court of the temple where they ought not to be. His friend Trophimus did not enter the temple. So we see these false accusations, one unfold after another, one unfold after another. He experiences the onslaught of hostility and lies. He walks in the footsteps of his forefather, King David, who writes a thousand years prior in Psalm 3, verse 6, David says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Let me ask you, what do you do as a follower of Jesus when false accusations are made against you? What do you do? Friends, you entrust yourself to God and you walk in the truth. 
You don't return sin for sin. You entrust yourself to God and you walk in the truth. No matter what is mounting against you, no matter the, the ways your character is being maligned, walk in the truth. Remain calm, walk in the truth. And that's exactly what Paul does. He speaks clearly, he speaks concisely. In the face of all this deception and all these mounting lies, he prevails in the truth. He's walking along the narrow way that leads to life. Tertullus walks the path of deceptive speech. Paul now walks the path of truth. What do you do when you're falsely accused? You walk in the truth. You entrust yourself to your Lord and you walk in the truth. Paul walks the path of truth in verses 10 through 21. He makes his defense. When the governor had nodded to him, he gives Paul the head nod. Your turn to speak, Paul. Paul begins, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. A concise and honest introduction before Felix. No flattery, no buttering up. He just speaks honestly, concisely. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. It's been 12 days since I was arrested in the temple courts. That's not nearly enough time to garner this following and start a revolution. These people are not speaking truth. Merely 12 days. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Paul was peaceful in Jerusalem. There was no dissent. There was no hostility from his end. Ask the eyewitnesses. He confesses the truth about his convictions in verses 14 and following. This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. What's Paul saying here? He says his sect, also known as the way or Christianity, is in fact founded upon the law and the prophets. All of those scriptures that the Jewish accusers of Paul would hold to, Paul's saying, I believe in these. My faith is grounded in these. And the way this sect of the Nazarenes has been birthed out of that. What is the foundation of Christianity? It's the law, the prophets, and the writings. All of the Old Testament scripture is the very foundation of the New Testament. All of it is pointing forward to Christ who comes in the New Testament. That's what Paul is, is saying. These are my forefathers, and they affirm the primary truth that is upsetting people, and that is the resurrection. Half the Jews believed in a resurrection. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. Only the Sadducees, this wealthy class of aristocrats, denied the resurrection. But most Jews in that day believed in the hope of the resurrection, which is what he's saying. They have a hope in God, which these men accept. They would affirm all this stir. is about a hope. And that hope is the resurrection. And Paul drills down, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is at issue. He has a clear conscience before God. Notice what he says in verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. 
Friends, the resurrection here, according to Paul, implies judgment. Because the reality of the resurrection is that both the wicked and the righteous, the just and the unjust, will be resurrected to stand before God in judgment. That's what Paul's saying. I have a clear conscience. One of the outcroppings, one of the results of the resurrection is that both the wicked and the righteous will be resurrected to stand before God and give an account for the deeds done in their lives. And those who have trusted in Christ, the righteous, will be forgiven, exonerated, and welcomed to eternal life. The wicked, however, they will be condemned for all eternity. That's what Paul said. The resurrection implies judgment. And Paul's saying, I had a clear conscience before God on judgment day. What I've done in Jerusalem and throughout the Roman Empire in my ministry, I have a clear conscience. What I've done is righteous and good, truthful. I've always taken pains to have a clear conscience before God and man. He explains the truth of his actions. Verse 17, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Paul went back to Jerusalem to deliver a large sum of money that he had collected from all these churches that he planted among the Gentiles. It shows his goodwill towards Jewish Christians who are struggling and destitute in Jerusalem. He comes by pure goodwill to deliver this offering. And while he was doing this, verse 18, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. I was not creating a stir. He's, he's clearly, concisely dismantling the accusations made against him by Tertullus. I created no chaos, no tumult. But some Jews from Asia, that is Ephesus, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. It was the Jews from Ephesus who saw Paul in the temple courts and created this stir. And it's interesting that they're not there right now which bolsters Paul's case because in Roman law, the accuser had to face off with the accused. They had to be there face to face. So the people who ought to have been there weren't even there. Paul's case becomes more compelling. He continues in verse 20, or else let these men say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Dylan preached this a handful of weeks ago, Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 11. Paul's on trial not before the Romans, but before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And what goes nuclear in that trial is the resurrection. When Paul says, I believe in the resurrection, these Sadducees and the Pharisees start dividing and they almost tear Paul apart. Why do people hate Paul? Why is Paul such a lightning rod? Because his proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ and specifically his resurrection from the grave. That's why. You just follow these sections of Acts. Why is there such a stir? It's his proclamation of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, the resurrected Messiah. The primacy of the resurrection. Friends, there is no good news without the resurrection. Our faith 
is futile and we're still in our sins without the resurrection. It is the core of the gospel. We spoke about this just a several, several weeks ago as we considered the passing of our beloved friend and brother and elder, Aaron Gray. What hope do we have upon sudden death? The hope of the resurrection. The truth of everlasting life with Christ who's conquered death through his resurrection. This is why Paul is such a lightning rod, is his proclamation of Christ the resurrected Lord. Friends, hold tight to the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't let anyone chip it away. Jesus Christ was sinless. Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice. He was buried in a tomb, and Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, and that makes all the difference in the world. You trust in him. Your eternal destiny is secure no matter what. No matter what you face, trust in Christ. It's the primacy of our faith. That's what this is all about. From chapter 23 onward, it's his conviction about Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. Tertullus in the path of deceptive speech, Paul in the path of truth. Thirdly and finally, Felix and the path of deceptive gain. We see the, the anatomy of Felix's character in verses 22 through 27, and it ought to cause us to shudder. So we unpack these verses. We ought to shudder at his spiritual condition, the compromise that he makes within, his curiosity, but his unwillingness to commit. Verse 22, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, Put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case then. So Felix has a pretty accurate understanding of Christianity. How does he have that? He married Drusilla, who is Jewish. So she, she has taught him some of the distinctives of Judaism and Christianity. Felix then diffuses the situation before it gets chaotic like it did in Acts chapter 23 at Paul's trial there. He says, I'm going to wait for Lysias, the Roman commander in Jerusalem, to come that I might confer with him, and then I'll decide Paul's fate. So he just kind of kicks the can a little bit and says, I'm going to decide this later. He gave, gave orders in verse 23 to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Again, this is what we talked about last week, the hidden hand of God, the favor of God on Paul, who's imprisoned, who's accused. But the Roman authority says, let people visit Paul. None of his friends are prevented. Let people visit them. Captivity and imprisonment in the ancient world, you were dependent upon visitors to provide you clothing, food, the door is open for support of Paul. We see that the hidden hand of God, the favor of God upon Paul. And then after some days, Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, verse 24, who was Jewish, sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. Isn't this interesting? What is the Lord doing with Paul? He's giving Paul opportunity no matter where he goes, no matter the predicament he's in, he has an opportunity to proclaim Christ. Isn't that good news? 
No matter what predicament that you're in, you have opportunities to speak of Christ before the ears of folks who need to hear it. Felix is curious, but he's not committed. He'll hear about faith in Christ. He'll hear Paul preach to a degree. There's a point where he puts the wall up. We'll see when he puts the wall up. Verse 25, Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Why is Paul's sermon context about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment? Because Felix was a character of ill repute. This Drusilla was a stolen wife. Scandal surrounded Felix. He forced Drusilla to divorce her first husband that he might have her. That ought to sound familiar. John the Baptist speaking to Herod, who took his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Very similar parallels here. Paul speaks of righteousness, of self-control against the passions of the flesh and the coming judgment, that we are accountable. Felix is suddenly alarmed upon Paul's content, the, the, the sermon. He says, go away for the present. He's uncomfortable with his conviction. And when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Brothers and sisters, the right preaching of the gospel ought to elicit the right kind of alarm in our souls. If we're not at times uncomfortable with the conviction of the Holy Spirit when the gospel's being preached and we're called to repent of our sins, there's something wrong about that preaching. If we surround ourselves with teachers who speak what our itching ears want to hear, we are destined for trouble. There is a right kind of alarm, a holy kind of fear that ought to accompany the preaching of God's word, the call to live righteous lives, the call to flee sin and pursue holiness. There's a right kind of fear that comes with the right kind of preaching. And Paul was doing the right kind of preaching here in this context, and Felix wanted to hear no more of it. What does he say? Paul, go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. The language there is, I will call you at a convenient time. But friends, the only convenient time to turn from your sin is now. You don't punt that. You don't kick the can. The only convenient time to turn from sin and trust in Christ is now. Today is a new day. Today is the day to call upon Jesus, to turn from your sin, to turn from your impurity, and follow Christ. Understand this truth about holiness. I know when we start talking about holiness, people get nervous. The gospel says this. We are to live holy lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the gospel demands holiness and empowers holiness. Do you believe that? The gospel demands holiness and empowers holiness. Where we get in trouble is when we think the gospel demands holiness and then I gotta come up with the power on my own. No, the gospel demands holy lives but empowers holy living. 
Isn't that good news? That's the way of Christ. That's the narrow way. It will be hard. There will be cost. You will have to give up and turn from your sin, comforts, conveniences. But oh, the destination is glorious. Life abundant and life eternal. Go away, come back at a convenient time. Well, that, not, that time never came for Felix. We see the real reason why Felix kept Paul around. Verse 26, Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. What was Felix trying to do? Paul, you just give me, give me some money, just a little, little bribe, and I'll let you go. Paul would have none of that. And so for two years, he kept him around, hoping for money, hoping for a bribe. This is the soiled character of Felix, who's all out for personal gain. He continues on this path, verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, the new governor, and Felix, desiring to do the Jews a favor, left Paul in prison. Why did he leave Paul in prison? Because he wanted to earn favor with the Jews who would be pleased if Paul was in prison. He caves to people-pleasing. He cares only about his reputation, and so he leaves Paul in prison. He skirts justice, what is right, in order to puff up his own reputation. Skirts justice for personal gain. Friends, beware the path of deception. Follow the path of truth. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter it. But narrow is the way, and hard is the path that leads to life, and those who find it are few. <clears throat> Jesus' invitation to sinners who right now are trotting the path, the wide path, the broken path, the unsatisfying path, is to come and follow me. No matter the muck you are walking in right now, Jesus' invitation to you and to me is to follow him. Turn from sin, trust in him. Come and follow me. Make no mistake, the way will be hard. But we follow a gracious savior and a good shepherd who is leading the way, who is protecting and providing, and who leads to life abundant and life eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it examines our own lives and the spiritual paths that we are on. But we confess that we are prone to wonder, prone to walk the path of unholiness, of selfish gain, of greed and pride and jealousy. Father, would you convict us by your spirit, empower us to turn to you, to walk along that narrow and difficult path, empowered by you in your grace. Forgive us of our sins. Be glorified through our repentant lives. Teach us, Lord, to walk in the truth, to walk in the light. And Lord, we look forward to, we long for the reward of following you, being in your presence enjoying you for all eternity. 
That is our prayer. That is our hope. We thank you that it's all made possible through your life, your death, and your resurrection, Lord Jesus. And it's your great name that we pray. Amen.